0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Tonight, we're going to be doing the video that came out from G3 Ministries. It's from their pre-conference on Christian nationalism and kinism. And we're going to be tackling the scariest, spookiest issue going on in evangelicalism this Halloween season, and that is kinism. It is the boogeyman that Big Eva and Mid Eva, or mostly Mid Eva, are very concerned about this boogeyman named Kinism. It's a very scary topic, a very scary and real issue, and that's going to be what we're going to be discussing tonight with uh, Owen Strand's lecture at the G three conference. So that's what we have to look forward to tonight. Uh, how are you doing? As w- I am all good, I'm excellent. Finished writing articles for the week, so. Yeah, I noticed you had a couple of hot articles. It's like you're trying to get me in trouble, (laughs) talking about Michael Brown and Palestinian Christians. Uh, I was thinking about doing a video on Palestinian Christians, and it it does appear to be some like liberation theology is very influential in Palestinian Christianity. Uh, So I I thought that was a very interesting topic, but I haven't gotten around to writing about that. It's been very busy um, this week connecting the intersection of politics and christianity is uh big in the news with mike johnson uh definitely getting a lot of feedback on that uh positive think, or negative well just he well, a lot of talk is about him uh some people like him some people are suspicious of him and i understand both sides i really do so i've already talked about that issue uh in this morning's video but Tonight, we're going to be talking about the Christian nationalism issue and G3 more specifically. So don't forget to like this live stream and subscribe to the channel if you are new or the podcast if you're listening to this afterwards. Uh, We will be interacting with more chat tonight. So um, hello to you all. So with that said, I, I believe the first place that I want to start out is this article that I wrote and it's called uh g3 scott annual goes full reddit tard uh actually i think it says full reddit okay i I didn't think i did full reddit tard in the headline but i definitely wrote that in the article um so g3 scott annual goes full reddit attacking christendom so this is um this was Monday or um, I wrote this down. This was Tuesday's article, but instead of doing this a uh, video on this, I saved it for tonight. And uh, I did the thing on Max Lucado and the, he gets his campaign because that's not exactly a dead story on the, he gets his campaign. Um, so Scott annual, um, uh, was being a little bit of a an edgy atheist but let's actually talk about the G3 ecosystem for a second here because G3 is a lot of people but it's no one really huge. So the G3 conference can be, pull in big names they had I believe Ken Ham there this year Vody uh has been there uh, John MacArthur's a frequent so they have a lot of big names. That can show up to the conference but the people behind the conference are actually not big names themselves like scout annual uh josh bice virgil walker aren't huge names and g3 was started sort of as a competitor to the gospel coalition uh michael o'fallon is a was a board member of g3 he's influential in g3's rise and ascendancy and certainly has some sort of role to play in their tourism ventures because they recently did a trip to London visiting or to England in general, visiting reformer sites, which is just ironic when you you're talking about Christendom and you're trying to bash Christendom. So.
1: Well, certainly Scott, struck up
0: some controversy this in uh, recent days. Uh So Scott annual is, um, one of the bigger names over at g3 he's on their podcast i want to say uh so he is one of their bigger names uh one of their you know main players i should say so this is his article scott annual goes full reddit attacking christendom in which you know being an edgy atheist may get you some clout on reddit but outside of that liberal cesspool and that's what reddit is uh the reddit tier arguments fall flat in the In the face of facts, G3 Ministries has been a race to lose credibility this year with their opposition to Christian nationalism and their willingness to embrace uh, liberal ideas and tactics to this end. So on Monday, Scott Annual of G3 Ministries took aim at Christendom. So this is what he said. 70 million innocent lives murdered, thousands of women raped children molested illegitimate children left to fend for themselves physical mutilation secularism no all done in the name of christ during christendom secularism is horrible but christendom is no better and this is a screenshot he would later delete this unceremoniously but this was his opening salvo that proclaiming that christendom is no better than secularism oh, why no why Which not Milk. Well, why not millions of women raped? I mean, again, why why stop at thousands? Like, Why did he stop at thousands? I don't and, know. Uh, if you're just making up numbers, which is what these numbers are. These numbers are absolutely made up and it's anti-colonial propaganda. I mean, have uh, illegitimate children ever had it easy in any society? I mean... Or at least certainly, I mean, certainly not in the Old Testament. An illegitimate child wasn't even allowed in the sacrificial system or in the temple, in the in the uh, tabernacle. So, I mean, the idea that the illegitimate child had the same access to the temple as as even or so in the Old Testament, I mean, okay, you could also be condemning the Israelites in the Law of Moses. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, ambassadors generally couldn't inherit property, so that's another thing that's uh, an overarching factor in this. I don't know what specifically that was referring to, but the 70 million, million—if uh, even if that seven, 70 million is accurate, secularism killed far more in the 20th century alone than Christendom did in how many centuries? No. So, uh, Sexual revolution if, uh, killed pretty much that much. I mean, we got sure. like 60 plus million dead babies here in the United States and they, they aren't even counting all the numbers because they don't count the self-medicated
1: uh, numbers. What
0: saying? 70 million over what? A thousand years. Uh, yes. Uh, let's just say a thousand years. Uh, so with that said, um, this is where he gets his numbers from. Uh, and I'm not going to read the quote cause he, Quotes a bunch of like anti-Catholic or anti-Papist polemics, but millions in these calculations cited died, uh, cited the millions in these calculations cited um, the downfall of Native American groups. Yet these groups would suffer from diseases that they had zero immunity to, not systemic genocide and millions in concentration camps as the imagery of these men suggests. the Papists did. Why are we pretending that the conquistadors were the bad guys in the war with the Aztec? All this to own Rome and the Christian nationalist. Moreover, the Spanish Inquisition is a vastly overblown phenomena- phenomenon in terms of casualties. And only the first third of the Thirty Years' War is a religious war, if he's counting those numbers as well. So I, I want to pile on the history a little bit more because there's like all this thing about the witchcraft and how many people died and were burned for being witches in European history. Those numbers were vastly exaggerated. And again, that is a death penalty offense in scripture, is it not? Well, I mean, we're we just be- going to yeah. say it was superstition and it's not real. And therefore it was unjust.
1: No, well, I mean, it also sh-
0: should be noted that witchcraft could have also been like abortionist. Like you would go to the herbal remedy specialist in the woods, the Wiccan lady who would give you a cure that's from like roots or something that would basically terminate a pregnancy. So like that type of activity also might have been considered witchcraft. Yeah, I mean witchcraft might be a broader you know, umbrella, but certainly in, a, in an era of medieval Europe, it's probably a lot more common than people uh, would think. And again, it's not an unjust sentence if they were indeed guilty. So that number's not included, but you hear that as well. So many things in your uh, in medieval history are exaggerated. Uh, the Spanish Inquisition, which is not really medieval, but uh, nevertheless very exaggerated. Uh, burning witches at the stake, very exaggerated. Uh, so these are, you know, just some facts. So Scott annual would delete this tweet after the massive ratio, but maintain the points in subsequent posts. Like he only deleted the initial post because it got heavily ratioed. Um, the week is early and G3 is not sending their best. Scott annual went full reddit never go full reddit And those who get that joke, get that joke. So, uh, any more thoughts to add on? I mean, why didn't, he, why didn't he just say that he lives on stolen land? He, he should have just said that. Like, that would have been, uh, you know, honest, right? You know, just give it back. Because, you know, the Spanish somehow killed uh, so many people in, Native, in in North America. Like, even the Eskimos got it. So, so responsible Uh, We, we white people are for, you know, all this genocide and stuff that wasn't actually genocide. So, that is the arguments that from G3, they are not sending their best. So, I'm trying to get this started already, but let's see if this works. So, we're going to be listening to this. Um, video. It's from the pre-conference event at the G3 conference. They finally released it on YouTube. They did it, I believe, either right before last week's stream. And I'm like, I gotta cover this. And then I think it's good enough to cover for a live stream. So okay, I have. So you have listened to. It. I have listened to the whole thing. I, I finished listening to the last 16 minutes of it right before the stream, but I have listened to the whole thing. Um, okay, I will be flying in blind then. Which, okay, so you got you're the double blind. I'm. Uh, I've actually seen it. So um, this is an interesting lecture. Like I had to verify that this was content worthy and it is content worthy Mm -hmm. because we got big tough guy. uh, Owen strand trying to weigh in. We're going to be listening to this, I believe at 1.15 or 1.10 speed. So, Uh, Let's see. Conceptual clarity says, I agree there were great wrongs against Indians in North America, but it was not genocide. And it's unfortunate that people don't have the guts to say that. And just the if you do the math, the conquistadors could not have gone everywhere. They didn't have the manpower to do that, do what they're accused of doing. They didn't have the manpower for that. And for the Disney movie, what was it? The Eternals. You know, these these eternals served under Nebuchadnezzar, and then all of a sudden they get squeamish about the Aztecs getting annihilated in their wars, or uh, the what is it, uh, Black Panther two? That's yeah, the Neymar, oh, the yeah. lions. So no the more, yeah, yeah. But I mean, again, the other thing is they a lot of times with the natives, it was basically a lot of proxy wars. Where I mean, Cortez conquers Mexico. With an army that's like 5% Spanish, so 95% of his army was was actually native. And he basically just led an u- uprising against the Aztecs. And they almost lost it all, too. They came this close to losing uh, after they took over the capital. They came that close to losing it. So it's a pretty interesting uh, urban warfare before Stalingrad type of situation uh, that they had to endure. So anyway, this is our lecture from the very famous Owen Strand. Actually, let's talk about Owen Strand for a second. Owen Strand is someone who was super woke, say, a decade ago. He was super woke. Uh, And then sometime after 2018, I want to say 2019, he sees the wind turning. He switches sides on the woke issue, or maybe he thinks that wokeness went too far. Writes a book on it that, from what I've heard isn't a very helpful book because it's not the type of book that names names and stuff like that. It's not the type of book that does that. And Owen strand has now kind of reverted on his previous wokeness because he's making a lot of woke arguments because we're going to talk about kinism and kin is or race used to race and kin kind of mean the same thing. If you're looking at, you know, say kin. King James English, Uh, race and kin mean the same thing. They're interchangeable terms. It's just that kin kin came around first, so you see the word kin or kindred in, say, the William Tyndale renditions of the New Testament and Old Testament. You see the word kin or kindred in that instead of race. But I, I do believe one of the instances used is race, but... For the most part, race is not the most uh, frequent word used in the Bible because other words came first. Uh, Kana Shaw says, I am listening to his book. It's not a good book, and he is woke light in the book. So that's interesting. I didn't think he was going to be woke light in the book, but even people like Lindsey Graham who are constantly – uh, promoted by you know G three, or at least used to be promoted, and then you Lindsay see Kramer, James Lindsay. Sorry, James Lindsay. Sorry, <laughs> they're both kind of gay, so you <laughs> get a little confused at times. And my head's just spinning from all the gayness, you know, as Ricky Bobby famously said. Uh, so James Lindsay used to, uh, you know, it, actually his claim to fame isn't actually his ideas. His claim to fame is he would just read their books and then post screenshots of their materials online on Twitter. That's literally why James Lindsay is at where he's at. And then he advances his own wokeness light, uh, especially on, you know, if you read his site, you know, he's woke on gender. You know, he, he doesn't believe that gender is a binary. So, with that said let's uh dive into this now that we got a little overview of who owen strand is um he's also controversial for his view on eternal submission or eternal submission of the sun he's controversial for that reason uh and he is what the provost at uh, gateway baptist theological seminary or is it Grace Bible Theological Seminary, not Gateway, that's the Southern Baptist one. It's GTBS, and he is, um, they call themselves a strip mall seminary, to be edgy, I guess. Um, So anyway, uh, Robert Sparkman says, I prefer using ethnicity of the word race. Race is associated with skin tone, not culture. For instance, African immigrants view themselves as very different than American blacks. I understand your point, but that's still you're, that's still a modern response to a change of definition that's not the actual definition so like to me the the definition of race is synonymous with is more synonymous with the definition of nation i mean i might I might differ just on that it race has different contexts and culture and different cultures but you know, the Japanese would consider anyone that's not Japanese a different race, even though that, you know, we American would say that they Asian. So we would not distinguish between their race, even though if you go to Japan, they would. Obviously, in America, I mean, we I mean, I guess it's more of a broader term, but yeah, America kind of weird. Yeah, because when it comes to race, like Hispanic is not a race in the United States. It's considered an ethnicity, even though. It's made up of several races. Like Cuban, I believe, is considered a race by the US government. Hispanic is not. Mexican is considered a race by the US government. Again, Hispanic is not. It's kind of they're kind of America's kind of weird like that in, in a legal sense. So anyway, that seems to be all the comments that we need to catch up on. So let's dive into this.
1: Uh if I can get this to the people. Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him, Jesus. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother." Let's pray. Father God, as we turn to Your Word and we consider serious matters, In this session, I ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word, and I ask your blessing upon the hearing of your word. I am nothing. Christ is everything. Bless your church. Protect your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Who is our family? What do Christians seek on this? I wanted to pause right there because the crowd size
0: didn't seem as large as it could be. I don't, I, mean, I don't know if that's just its pre-conference. It's like it pre- is a pre-conference. It's the pre-game show. Yeah, I mean, not many people watch preseason football, but is that a you know a an apt comparison for this? Um, you know, it's it, it's worth noting that the crowd like half-filled at most.
1: This Earth. In recent days, we've ri- witnessed the rise of what is called Christian nationalism. Um, It's not hard to see why this movement has picked up steam. Here are seven reasons why. First, the real weakness of the gospel-centered movement created a vacuum. The late stages of the gospel-centered movement did not go well, tragically, a movement that influenced so many of us in profound ways for which we're still grateful, me included. Those later stages of the gospel-centered movement led by a number of key organizations known to many of you. Perhaps they shaped you as they shaped me those late stages did not go well, and there was not enduring faithfulness on a number of tough issues confronting the church, sadly. Secondly,
0: okay, I wanted to pause right there. Um, Are you in any way inspired by the gospel-centered movement? Because I don't know what's good about it. I don't, yeah, I wouldn't, like, I'm not even sure what what all is encompassed in that but i obviously, mean it seems like isn't that the gospel coalition's thing we're trying to be gospel centered. yeah it's like that it's but i mean when they say evangelicalism has reinvented itself every decade like the whole gospel centered centered gospel gospel center whole thing like that whole dynamic is the whole reinvention of evangelicalism if anything it's i mean the idea the i don't know if and i don't know what the other points are but maybe a, a desire to return to tradition versus the constant uh reinvention of evangelicalism and that's why the gospel centered movement failed is because you constantly have to reinvent evangelicalism for modern culture and
1: the and idea that, to
0: like t- transplant the gospel with it and the idea that we need to be appealing because I think gospel is all about appealing to the world too like Again, yeah, like the gospel coalition kind of being forefront about this. But yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't, I would say it was an abject failure. I mean, not
1: a, I've heard Joel
0: Webin talk about this, and Joel Webbin basically said it was a downgrade from red letter Christianity. Because at least the red letters in Christianity would, you know, expound, have a greater scope than, say, just the gospel itself in terms of teaching the whole counsel of God. So, I I want to say that there's something about that that's within the gospel-centered movement, but, but I'm not means, really. But I think it was—it's always been perceived as lukewarm. Okay, so you you'd say I it's always know. been kind of lukewarm. I I don't get the appeal of the gospel-centered movement. I just I don't know. I haven't been enamored by it, but it's worth mentioning. This is his first opening point as to why Christian nationalism is a thing. I mean, why don't you define what gospel-centered movement is? He kind of assumes that everyone knows, but I don't know. Maybe I could use a fresh refresher on that. Or
1: What are the years? The Christian nationalism crowd, as we'll call it at this point in general, recognized rightly that you cannot play the negative world as if it is the neutral world, to use those terms from Aaron Wren. Third, in the face of unjust lockdowns and political shenanigans of all sorts, the bold response by some on the CN side, as I'll call it, drew much attention. And so there was major gain in market share that happened on the CN side, in part because many more mainstream reformed leaders, if we can say that term, didn't speak up in the last two to three years on a number of hot-button issues. And a number of CN folks did. And they understandably gained market share followers for doing so boldly and in some cases righteously fourth
0: uh Let's point see. two and three neutral world first um I agree with that that that's a solid reason why uh christian nationalism is a thing it's a recognition that we can't be why is neutral world the goal of so many Christian organizations instead of positive world well did he say that we were a negative world from neutral world or that we were in neutral world uh, treating negative world as neutral world, I think, is what he said. Okay, which is weird, uh, Weird, but and then point number three, or point number three, pretty much sounded like oh, they're platform building, they struck while the iron's hot, and they just, you know, they, yeah, they're, by they're speaking out on correct issues and you know, stuff that these people could have been a lot of these people could have been doing. Uh, where was G3 on the issue of COVID? Nowhere, basically, and they're they were in tow behind. Uh, John MacArthur if we really want to be blunt about it Uh, where was Nine Marks? Nowhere well they went woke and they've been woke for a long time but G3 was actually more concerned about you know how you're supposed to worship during you know lockdowns and all that other stuff than they were about helping and encouraging churches to open up regardless of the lockdown situation so they were functionally nowhere uh, and so that that point's right. And, you know, some issues make people. I don't know what issue made Owen Strana thing. But he's just someone who's been rising up the ladders of Big Eva. Like, he is someone who I believe wrote for the Gospel Coalition a lot. But now he's, you know, switch trying to, like, switch sides and meander and stuff like that. So he knows a little thing or two about this. But as far as people who have built a platform, is that just a reference to Joel Webin? And because I didn't know who Stephen Wolf was, say, a little bit more than a year ago. I didn't know who he was. Yeah. I and William Wolf, I maybe knew about a little bit longer than that. And keep in mind when he says market share, that's pl- about platform building. That's him viewing those people as competition, because that's what you say that's a business term, market share. That's your competition. And the people behind G3 are kind of that petty. I'm, I'm talking about Michael O'Fallon uh, a lot of, in a lot of ways, but he's not behind G3 anymore, at least not on paper. He's off their board. But yeah, it is. they do view it as competition. And I do think a lot of this is posturing on their end because they don't like losing market share. And that's why they've come out so clownishly against Christian nationalism, because they don't want to lose market share to that, and they don't know how to debate it, and they won't debate it. So they just kind of label it and you know stick their noses up at it, and they don't want to debate the issue at all. So uh, they're aware that it's a market share game, and I think that's – Nor offer their own. Largely – What's driving their money or or they're not even willing to offer their own alternative. Like we have no problem talking. You have no problem talking with uh, Charles. Hayward. And this whole conference is about that. It is about that. It is about G3 saying there's no clarity on the issue of Christian nationalism. So buy our conference, buy tickets to our conference. That's how they were advertising this like six months ago. That's how they were doing this. There's no clarity, but we'll provide the clarity for a price.
1: On this camp side, there is a plain spoken willingness to speak truth without affectation, and that is understandably attractive to the sheep. For example, we do despise blasphemy against God as Christians. We, we don't take that lightly. We don't wanna be comfortable with that, whatever our specific political theology is. Fifth, folks who take on the CN name have a strong belief in God's design for men and women, and they boldly proclaim that and live that out. And even the recent discussion of head coverings and this sort of thing can be a helpful matter to think through. And it shows us, genuinely, that there is a real desire on the part of some in this movement to take the the Word of God very seriously and live it out however God calls us to live. And again, that is positive, that is commendable. Sixth, Christians have grown weary of our public theology being no public theology at all. Christians are sick and tired of that, and rightly so. If we truly have basically nothing to say to the public square, nothing at all, no witness, no prophetic stand, you really do have to wonder what we are in business for, given that our identity as the church is the witnessing people of Jesus Christ, a man killed, because he witnessed a man killed, murdered, crucified, because he dared to tell the truth in public. So if there is no public witness among some, expect where there is public witness for that group to get traction. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus performance line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the invitation to Lexus sales event now through April 1st experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Seventh and finally, Christians are battling anxiety and despair and fear on an hourly basis. These days, 2023 is rough going in many respects and common terms. And the optimism and downright good cheer of some on the CN side has been very appealing for people and one adherence, and again, rightly so. If reformed people are going to be grim and morose and downtrodden and legalistic, and then there are going to be other reformed people who are going to be joyful and full of good cheer and seemingly enjoying life on an hourly basis, which group would you think is going to prove attractive to people? There's a number of reasons why CN has had a real effect, but CN is not one thing. Christian nationalism is numerous things. It's all
0: right. That's a good place to pause. Um, any other reasons you think he's missing? Well, I mean, is he acknowledging that there's been an absence of public theology? No, I think he's acknowledging that the public theology that does exist sucks. Okay, but he's part of that. It's, it's like saying, oh, I'm anti-establishment. And, you know, you're... I mean, it's like Kevin McCarthy saying he's anti-establishment in the Republican Party. It's just like, bro, you are the establishment. Like, you can't... Or even Donald Trump saying he's anti-establishment. I was going to say, he is, if you wanted to be... Spicy, the establishment, But, know, like, it, you can't say that, hey, there's a lack... Like, so is he acknowledging that they have legitimate grievances? But then... But that would mean he would have to actually take... A, take responsibility, or at least G3 would have to take responsibility for being part of that problem, which I don't think they've actually ever done as far as the whole debate thing is. I don't think they've actually acknowledged that they fell short. No, very few pastors have acknowledged that they fell short in 2020. Yeah, that goes on COVID as well. How many pastors, how many, I mean, how many pastors have, you know, recanted their George Floyd, uh, i mean a lot the, of people talk about moment in 2020 yeah, a exactly. lot of people talk about mike johnson but you know what about your local pastor yeah i think it's worth mentioning because again there was no evidence of racism in that video but uh, i don't think it's just the positive i think that was the, known at the time like he he ended on the positive thing which maybe like a thing at 80 virgolas i don't know maybe Joel webin because you know the, a lot of these people are happy warriors exactly but, the jolly I, warrior my, you know, but the other thing is, they're not Nathaniel act- Jolly, of course. They're actually acknowledge, like, the, like they might be the Jolly Warrior, but they're actually going to acknowledge the deep underlying problems in our culture that are really negative in a way that I don't think the G G three people acknowledge. So here's what he's missing: the failures of the post-war consensus, and um, classical liberalism is bad, and we've internalized it too much. He doesn't really have a one of his seven points, isn't about that. It's not about internalized liberalism and trying to cast it off. You know, try or a point about, you know, what maybe democracy isn't the end all be all, like you know, Scott Annual thinks it is. Oh, speaking of him, uh, he he went after Ben Zizeloft of the Republic Sentinel, uh, he went after him for basically you know, trying to burn dispensationalism and all that. He's like, that's not the Israeli first uh, dispensationalism that you see in this video is not real dispensationalism. And it's like the, and it's like, like I was saying that the Scott annual was okay. So now annual is like, we shouldn't just support Israel because they're God's chosen nation. We should also support them because they're a democracy. It's like, uh, it's like no, neither of those are reasons to Wait, support. So th- another reason Zyloff was fired from Daily Wire. No, not well. Maybe, maybe. Let's be real. Well, and not, again, but he was he wasn't fired from Daily Wire. He was basically pushed out because Jeremy Boring threw him under the bus for no, reporting no, no, on the chosen. Just be honest. I, I'm telling the audience because they might not know um, who just, Ben Zyloff is, um, and. Uh, how base he has been didn't, lately. Didn't he's just troll. And today he's just been trolling G3 by posting the, you know, 1 Corinthians 7, seven I quotes didn't. from that. And feminists who hate sex are getting so outraged by Paul's words. I did not know you could work for the Daily Wire and be that Christian. I, I didn't know either. Well, Megan oh, Basham. Okay, still, but... Megan Basham. So uh, moving oh, but, on. Oh, I think but the other thing is the, the gravity of the problems. Like, you know, you have an economy that doesn't work a political process that cares more about Israel and Ukraine than it does the American people. The fact that you're being demographically replaced, which, you know, I'd like to see anyone at G3 acknowledge that replacement is actually happening. I mean, what's the count? 8 million people. have We might get an acknowledgement of that in this. Okay. Maybe we'll get some, but so 8 million people, which would be like the 12th or 13th largest state in America, or maybe, maybe 11th. It'd be top 15. In population. All right, let's uh, move on.
1: It's funny that it falls to some of us who are not CN and have not been from the moment I heard of it two years ago to define it. People are constantly saying, well, what is CN? What would you say? And I say, it's not my movement. I don't really feel the need to have to define it. But as I tried to do a few years ago with wokeness, I'll try to give you some some thoughts along those lines. I see three different streams of CN today. First, gospel-driven CN, which I would argue grounds itself in the death and resurrection of Christ and is often connected to post-mill eschatology. Its focus is gospel proclamation. And I would say that is a good focus. And we heard a representative of gospel-driven CN about 25 minutes ago, just so you know. Who this is, is a movement that deserves engagement
0: right you wanted to pause at that uh who who was that that he's referring to is that Verdi uh let, let me let's finish and
1: respect it is a it is a serious movement it is not to be lightly dismissed for sure
0: then there's i think that's talking about doug wilson so mm-hmm. i mean again i don't i, I think post mill is generally a small camp in the grand scheme of things I mean, let, let's be honest, like of the eschatologies out there, Ah and Pre Mill Dispy are probably your two largest camps, followed by his historic pre-mill, and then followed by post mill. I mean that's that's my guess. But there are a lot of post mill reform guys, but the G three crowd, the Doug Wilson crowd isn't as large as a lot of people might think it is. Like as far as the evangelical dark web goes, I'm trying to market much broader than that, uh, because I'm not a pastor relying on a church audience to build and and grow a platform from that. I I'm just going much broader than that. That's why I like talking about the chosen. That's why I like uh, talking about some of the other things that we've talked about uh, this past week, and because it's a much bigger world out there, and I don't want to be like so caught up in this. This nonsense, but G three is huge in in and of itself. The G three conference is huge. I, I do. I want mean, to it's say comic Comic Con for Christianity. It, it kind of is. It it, it was a much uh, more talked about conference than the Gospel Coalition conference, which happened the same month. So, this first camp he's talking about is the Doug Wilson camp.
1: What I call law driven. Christian nationalism. This seeks the recovery of the moral law in the public square, and it's focused on government going lawful. It's more theonomic in flavor. Its focus is political engagement, though not uh, severed from the church, and promoting the law in public. And this, too, is a movement that deserves serious engagement and respect. A figure like a Greg Bonson, for example, would be associated with a form of this. And Greg Bonson was an absolute baller to use a technical theological term. Ha, ha. Then there's a third element of CN that has caught my attention and the attention of a good number of you. And it's called, in my-
0: Wait, so what was the difference between one and two? One was like the Doug Wilson Post Mill, the two was theonomic? Yeah. Um... Okay. I there's two kind of blended together I wasn't really sure there was a
1: difference. Handling working with my colleague, Jeff Moore, who you heard earlier, mono ethnic CN, mono ethnic, one ethnicity, or one race, I guess you could say if you wanted to already be in problematic territory. This last form of CN has been represented at the book level in the most serious way among all the streams recently. Of Christian nationalism, the most extended case for CN to, to date is called The Case for Christian Nationalism. It and is. it is written by a figure named Dr. Stephen. You gotta
0: hold Wolf. it upside down like they Wolf did. is clearly
1: a deep thinker, <laughs> and he can be a gripping like and persuasive writer. His text has been taken as more or less a mainstream book, albeit one with some spicy phrasing and unusual ideas. The book is endorsed by Jerome Hazzoni. And it's been promoted by Douglas Wilson and other respected figures. When one reads the entire book, though, one makes a rather shocking discovery. This book advances and is dependent on what can only be called a kinist vision. By kinism, I mean that ideology that emphasizes the need to preserve as a moral duty a given ethnicity often through avoiding inter-ethnic marriage. This push is often consonant with a call for the preservation of a communal or national identity based on that ethnicity. Kinism has long played on the fringes of both the left and the right. In fact, in recent years, we have seen the rise of a real and poisonous form of partialist mono-ethnic thinking crop up on the left through wokeness a real foe, a terrible ideology that has taken everything we've had to fight off, and we're still fighting and will be for some time, even as wokeness continues to creep into our social, political, and cultural life. But now we are seeing the very same partialism crop up on the right among conservatives and Christians.
0: So I want to pause right there because why are you seeing this? You are seeing this because wokeness was fundamentally anti-white. It was trying to get people to hate themselves. And so you're going to see a backlash in that that not only acknowledges, hey, there isn't exactly a racial neutral like we've been lied to all our lives using you know, MLK platitudes as though MLK wasn't himself exactly like the wokeness that you were going to see um decades later like he wasn't a precursor to that in his own personal life and other beliefs outside of letters from a birmingham jail and the i have a dream speech but everything else you know outside of that uh so there there's going to be a recognition that hey white people are going to wake up to the fact that you know there isn't exactly a neutral race thing anymore in, in our society And I think some people are capitalizing off of that. I think some people are acknowledging that. I'm certainly acknowledging that. Uh, And he seems to think that that's a bad thing. But most of what you heard about him and Stephen Wolf, he's basically saying that Stephen Wolf's book is predicated on kinism. That's basically the argument that he just made. And I don't know if you have a specific pull quote. I mean... Uh, If you got it ready, I can... uh, Let me know if you get when you get it ready, but otherwise, let's uh, yeah, you can continue. But I mean, obviously, he actually. I mean, basically, I mean, it is always the claim that Wolf would be called like racist. I mean, in the, I mean, this is the quote from page one thirty five: "Is in the West, people groups have become either concealed or suppressed or celebrated and purified by an ideology of universality." partly through the homogenizing force of the state capitalism and capitalist statecraft, and through the ethnic privileging of woke capitalism, all in the interest of a cosmopolitan, super rich elite of nowheres. So the idea is that you become a global citizen, you're no longer a citizen of America, but you're a citizen of the world, and you're no longer identified with a people group. So if you're British, you're no longer really a Briton. you're a homogenized uh, hodgepodge of every nation that's basically been implanted in what is now Britain. So basically, I mean, it's the same way of if you flood a nation with a bunch of immigrants, those immigrants have no concept of what that nation is. It's breaking the bonds of the people to their nation and largely steven wolf's book is about using christian nationalism as a means to restore uh social undergirding social fabric and creating a high trust society that's largely what steven wolf's book is about it's not about you know and he even i believe there's a quote where he explicitly says that ethnicity isn't solely defined by genetics no, I mean, again, there's a whole example in the book about how you can assimilate about how, you know, how even even in church history, or just in general, where you have a large influx of people, there tends to be a lot of turbulence. Uh, so but assimilation can happen. And again, there's an example in there about the Cajun Asian, who is basically, you know, become live an Asian dude that lives in Louisiana. But I mean, yeah, to Wolf's point, the only way to fight back against a lot of the globalist, you know, racial homogenizing, which, again, is basically talking about importing a bunch of like third world people into a country that is predominantly white with a specific heritage, that that is designed to break the nation, to end the nation and corrupt the nation, which, again, it has happened. It's demonstrably true.
1: In this session, I want to seek to accomplish just two aims with you this afternoon. First, track the essential argument made by Wolf, the most influential mono-ethnic theorist of the CN crowd, and as I say today, the one who has produced the most serious intellectual text for the movement. And then secondly, I want to offer a robust seven-part response in rapid-fire form to kinism from the word, And the gospel.
0: Spoiler alert, it's not rapid fire.
1: So, first, what is Wolf's essential argument in the case for Christian nationalism? My goal in what follows is to be scrupulously fair. That is my aim. You've already heard me attempt to separate out different streams of Christian nationalism. I trust you're already picking up that I am laboring toward that end, toward fairness, whether you agree with me in full or whether you disagree with me uh, in full or even on some different matters. My goal is to be fair, but also clear. The argument made today by Wolf and others is that we need to embrace Christian nationalism. The argument made along these lines is a bold and startling one in his book. While we should be Christian, he writes on page 11, nevertheless, the gospel does not supersede, abrogate, eliminate, or fundamentally alter generic nationalism. It assumes and completes it. This contention and quotation from Stephen Wolfe takes us aback. The gospel does not fundamentally alter generic nationalism. This already is a strange conception of the gospel because the gospel of Jesus Christ is an altering gospel or it is no gospel at all, brothers and sisters. We do not join systems in wholesale terms or in pieces to the gospel. Can I just
0: comment on that? Like Paul wasn't extremely um, dedicated to his Jewish nationality? Yeah, I mean, the idea of national affections being rooted in the Bible, which is the proper interpretation of, or a, pro- a necessary, facet to the interpretation of Romans 11 but yeah, it's a nonsensical
1: argument Gospel, you have to think systemically or systematically that's a fancy term it happens to be my title of theology at grace bible theological seminary professor of systematic theology and people get a little bit concerned about that big clunky title but really You don't just think about theology from the scripture systematically, you have to think about systems throughout your life, throughout all the world, all culture.
0: The gospel
1: informs and transforms how we engage systems. For example, I may be politically conservative. I have been politically conservative for as long as I can remember breathing. I was the vice chair of the college Republicans at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine in 2002 or three, I'm very excited to announce that title to you. I will then follow that up by telling you there were four of us in the college Republicans. So we all got an office. It was one of those exciting realities where everybody gets an office. It's like Oprah out there. Everyone gets a title, okay? I got vice president and I wear it proudly. So I am to this day dyed in the wool conservative. And that Okay, being a part of
0: college Republicans does not make you conservative. It just doesn't, um, especially if you're in a blue state context. Let's just be real about that because so many college Republicans, say social media accounts, are very pro-gay. They're very not Republican at all. Well, it's just let's, like even let's even go back to 2002. What would have been his thing? Yes, rally the troops for Iraq. Is that what he was going to – I mean because we know that ten years ago he was really woke. He was really
1: woke. So how how conservative was he was he? So that is a good word by the way, conservative, not a bad one.
0: I I think it's incredible. But I would always take pains
1: to tell you that the gospel shapes, critiques, and even transforms my conservatism. I am not a conservative like a godless person is a conservative. And there are, by the way, lots of people who are not Christians who are politically conservative. In a common grace sense, I'm thankful for them, but I am not the same as them. And even though we overlap in our views on a lot of things, yes, I do not have the same system they have. Why? Because the gospel supersedes and alters every part of who I am. The gospel has not come to me and gotten the 20% of me that is spiritual saved and left the remaining 80% untouched. The gospel has saved me to the full and the gospel has saved you to the full. And there is no part of yourself, your mind, your being, your body that you can hold back from the gospel and say, gospel does not alter this. If it is the true gospel, it changes you to the uttermost. Such were some of You, Paul said to the Corinthians, we have a such were some of you gospel that is questioned and undermined from every conceivable angle today, including political theology. But this is the conviction of convictions. Why? Because this is God's gospel. It is not our gospel. And when God saves us, as Steve Lawson has said in his Lawsonian way, yes, that is a term. God does not execute a makeover. He executes a divine takeover.
0: I want to pause right there, uh, bring up this comment by Moth. Uh, What he just said is that a nation can't be changed by the gospel, but nationalism can be changed by the gospel. And that kind of points, that kind of undermines to me one of his points about conservatism, which I think conservatism, conservative is a far more meaningless term than Christian nationalism. Uh, Especially when you look at, you know, know, Ben Shapiro, you know, loves himself some Nikki Haley. How conservative is he? Versus, you know, other people much further to the right of that. Um, So with that said, he can talk about conservatism being shaped by Christianity and the gospel. But why can't nationalism also be shaped by Christianity and the gospel? And what would you call such a nationalism that's shaped by Christianity and the gospel? Um, National socialism, that's the answer, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. National socialism, maybe a workers party for the German people. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Nationalism as a system is predicated historically on the concept that a nation depends in general terms on a given Ethnicity. That is what distinguishes it historically from, for example, patriotism. I am an avowed patriot. I continue to love this country, staggering as it is. Nationalism, though, is different from patriotism because it usually advances the idea that it depends on a given ethnicity or two at most. Along these lines, Wolf tells us early in his book, page 25 much good would result in the world, he writes, if we all preferred our own and minded our own business." End quote. Wolf repeats his idea that the gospel does not alter systems later on. Since grace restores nature, he writes, and natural law contains all the moral principles concerning social relations, the gospel does not alter the priority and inequality of loves amongst those relations. I repeat, the gospel does not alter our loves among relations, page 101.
0: All right, page okay page. so yeah this is this again, is about uh ordo order of, of loves which order again i loves. i do have the calvin quote pulled up which is 265 which is uh, uh other paul you pull it up other paul says in this in this talk his primary epistem this epistemic foundation is a biblical positivism the Bible doesn't tell us to do X therefore we shouldn't pursue it likewise a naive um likewise a naive hermeneutic oh. of refusing to recognize category distinctions the ordo amoris or so, so here's and the uh... passage on one thing Galatians 328 and apply to apps in an absolute manner to every conceivable context i.e national bond. Okay, so here's uh, John Calvin. This is exactly where Wolf is pulling his source from on this particular passage, or at least the ideas verbatim. And it is, our Savior, having shown in the parable of the Samaritan that the term neighbor comprehends the most remote stranger, there is no reason for limiting the precept of love to our own connections. I deny not that the closer the relation, the more frequent our offices of kindness should be for the condition of humanity requires that there be more duties in common between those who are more nearly connected by ties of relationship, friendship or neighborhood. And this is done without any offense to God, by whose providence we are in a manner impelled to do it. But I say that the whole human race without exception are to be embraced with one feeling of charity, that here there is no distinction of greek or barbarian worthy or unworthy friend or foe since all are to be viewed not in themselves but in god so basically the the entire premise i mean again that's that's john calvin that's your reformed theologian and again since people like to say wolf well, doesn't cite scripture the passage in question would be luke 10:36 with the samaritan so the i mean the idea that um, it was about proximity. Yes. That you should love those in your proximity more, or you have more that's duties. That's who your neighbor is, regardless of whether they're a Samaritan or not. Yeah, but your duties are higher. And again, that's that's the Reformed theological And, and this all goes back to the whole starving child in Africa thing, where you know, li- people who are liberal have an out-of-order, order amoris. Their loves are out of order. They will love, say, the planet; they will love the environment more. The you know these broad categories that are nebulous more than they will love their own families and even their own friends. So I mean, Wolf's idea—they've done not, studies on that. Wolf's ideas are not novel at all. It's and it's pulled and it can be pulled directly from Calvin,
1: and probably countless others. In a book filled with huge statements often ungrounded. That is a staggering claim. As we shall see, the gospel definitely and unavoidably transforms who we love and how we love. It absolutely changes the priority, the framework, the structure of our loves. Wolf's vision of unaltered love fits with his handling of national identity. Quote, I use the terms ethnicity and nation almost synonymously, though I use the former to emphasize the particular features that distinguish one people group from another. Nation is used to emphasize the unity of the whole, though no nation, he writes, properly speaking, is composed of two or more ethnicities. Page 135. So there it is. Nationalism advances this idea that a, a nation needs to be composed of two or less ethnicities that's apparently the rule that he has handed down for us
0: uh, fewer not mm, less
1: that's a, um, probably a
0: very, it's it's the golden rule it's like uh, i mean again, because what is a nation nation and race are actually more synonymous in their definitions which we kind of talked about earlier um but and in terms of race versus kindred but nation you know, means it just dis- part of the definition of what a nation is, is common ancestry. So again, where was Wolf wrong? That's 135 loving our nations the chapter title. I mean, uh, if you want me to keep playing while you pull that up. Yeah, you
1: can go that the nationalists have handed down for us. This, in fact, is not merely a pragmatic matter, though. This is, in fact, according to him, the most pleasant way to live. Quote, think of the people with whom you feel at ease conducting your daily life, with whom you share similar expectations of conduct, aesthetic judgments, and recreational activities. And with those, you can join in a common life that achieves the highest ends of man, page 136. So, according to Wolf, the life that achieves the highest ideals of man is a mono-ethnic life. At least much of the time, usually, Wolf leaves room for some interaction between different ethnicities. He says this later on. People of, def- of different, excuse me, ethnic groups can exercise respect for difference, conduct some routine business with each other. I guess you can buy soda from somebody of a different ethnicity. They can join in inter-ethnic alliances for mutual good and exercise common humanity. But they cannot have a life together that goes beyond mutual alliance. End quotation. That is a very important sentence as well. They cannot have a life together that goes beyond mutual alliance. In fact, he goes on to say this, much good would result in the world if we all preferred our own. He says it at multiple places. He gives a repeated rationale for this. I've already alluded to it. He says, quote, dissimilar people together can achieve the basic goods of humanity, but not the complete good. So this is clear and unmistakable as a system. In his book, Wolf leaves some hard-to-understand room for inter-ethnic marriage.
0: All right, so before because, we get into the whole interracial marriage thing, he Wolf is basically saying that multicultural societies don't work. Yeah, I mean... Because his definition of ethnicity is actually broader, as I understand it. Yeah, um, I mean, again, and in in this chapter in particular has a lot of uh, uh, Greek thought, Greco uh, philosophy in it i mean he does quote uh plato and aristotle i mean this is a plato quote that's in the book when a single people or speak the same language and observe the same balls you get a certain feeling of community so again the idea that you need a you cannot have a multicultural society succeed does owen strand deny that is my question would be my question do you think multiculturalism works and if your answer is just going to be gospel which okay but like yeah show me the society not, where a hundred percent of people are saved but but i mean this is again this is after the whole uh yeah globalism is basically trying to i guess erase national identity and national heritage so that's that, the context within the broader yeah from page 135 because he All and right. again this chapter does use a lot of greek or, Greek philosophy that, again, even Calvin uses Aristotle and Plato, so it's not like for entirely obscure that a Christian would use a
1: uh, Greek philosopher in their writing. But he also is quite clear that the formation of a Christian nation, which again is his goal, that is his stated goal, relies upon kin marriage, as Blake Callens has pointed out. He writes that blood...
0: Okay, gotta pause right there. Do you know who Blake Callens is? No. Uh, Blake Callens is like a fed and I'm pretty, I'm I'm like 90% sure he's like a fed or something like that. Cause this dude had like a hundred followers on Twitter and is all of a sudden being cited, you know, self publishes a book or whatever. And is all of a sudden being cited by all these people in G3 world and the anti-Christian nationalist world. Dude comes out of nowhere has under a hundred followers on Twitter and is all of a sudden discovered by these people. How does that happen? And I don't think that naturally happens. I I think there's some, uh, I I think he's a lot more connected than he lets on. And I think those connections are the federal government. So, I mean, again, my thoughts, because it's not like feds haven't been infiltrating Christianity before. I mean, with Brian Auten and he coined the term evangelical dark web, which is the name for this channel. So, it's not like feds have played zero role in this are we going to pretend that there's not additional hurdles that come with interracial marriage, especially and, if there's, uh, yeah. especially if there's, if there's a cultural disconnect as, as in like, you know, you're, you're married, you're marrying someone that actually is a foreigner versus like, you know, the black person next, next door kind of thing. Like as opposed to like someone's in your proximity, but marrying someone that's beyond your proximity. I mean, are we just not going to pretend that it's, you know, there are additional challenges that come with such relationships. I mean there there definitely are, but let's hear what he has to say on. That. Ties
1: are crucial to ethnogenesis. A community of blood is essential to ethnicity on pages one thirty nine and one forty he sharpens the point later on in the text. Culturally distinct groups of Christians could of course start their own churches and this would solve one problem, but it remains the case that cultural diversity harms civil unity for it undermines the ability for a community to act with unity for its good. I will repeat that phrase again. Cultural diversity harms civil unity. Hold that thought. But it is not just society that should not feature diverse mixing. At one point on social media, Wolf avowed that inter-ethnic marriage was relatively sinful. He later kinda sorta took that back on a podcast. He didn't write anything about it that I was able to see at length. False politic podcast. But others who have supported Wolf have made similar arguments, and Wolf's own book calls for blood ties that are crucial to ethnogenesis. So his point basically stands. Whether he would call it sinful or not, I do not know. It is certainly the case that it is not ideal to have different ethnicities mixing at will. When I pushed back against kinism about a month ago, I was told anecdotally on social media that black women, that the person in question knew, didn't want black men marrying white women. And this was taken as just a kind of law of nature, principle of how things are. So it's not, in other words, just Stephen Wolf, who was making this argument, his book is the most influential text in recent days to advance this argument. But
0: wait, Stephen Wolf is the most, uh, most influential book advancing the argument that white fathers don't want their daughters marrying black men. I mean, we can go back to the (laughs) sixties. Like they needed Stephen Wolf to, and again, again, and I'm not making that argument myself. It only goes one way. Like it's never, you know, black people don't want to Marry outside, you know, the the white, you know, you don't, I mean, Chris, Asian uh, grandmother is going to be super happy with her daughter marrying a white dude. I mean, Chris Rock's joke was literally, give it time, give it time. We've been married nine years, give it time, give it time. <laughs> but I mean, the quote in question is, my intent here is not to dismiss, to discount or dismiss the importance of blood ties in ethnogenesis, it just, which, and then there's, he defines it a dismissal of that is a fashionable politically correct and could save me some trouble. It is simply like basically saying is I'm not going to dismiss it even though it would be convenient to to dismiss the idea of ethnogenesis. Um it's simply creating the case that's a new ethnicity? Uh no, like I guess ethno homogeneity. I guess okay it's, um it's simply to his case is simply that a community of blood, a community in blood is crucial to ethnicity, basically that you actually have to have genetic relationship in order to have uh, ethnicity. And But this should not lead us to conclude that blood ties are the sole determinant of ethnicity as if we all need, all, as if all we need are DNA tests. He does quote uh, more of an academic scholar after that, but I mean, but I mean, we he see this saying thing that genetics isn't the sole determining factor of ethnicity or blood ties. Yeah, I mean, he's saying it like, obviously, he's saying blood matters, but right. it's not the sole. Because determined. he's saying that multiculturalism is bad. Woke Owen Strand is now saying Stephen Wolf is bad because multiculturalism is good. And I think other Paul aptly pointed out that he has a positive Bible... Uh, positive hermeneutic epistemic foundation for the bible so he he relies on biblical positivism that the bible doesn't say x is good and what we should be doing then therefore it's something that shouldn't be pursued at all well but even now we can look at any society that is high trust there's no such thing as a, a multicultural high trust society and this is pretty much spelled out in in the loving your nation chapter when he talks about doing business when he talks about the ability of an ethnically homogenous nation to achieve more than a multicultural society that's because there is trust you can actually trust the institutions to work as they're supposed to you can trust that people aren't going to hop the subway fares in new york and you can like you can actually have a high trust society and you see a lot of these homogenous societies particularly in scandinavia that as they import more third world people You start seeing more crime. You start seeing a lot, you know, quality of life goes goes down because you got these people that are disturbing, that are essentially deterred in the punch bowl. So you're disrupting a high trust society.
1: Others have as well. Andrew Torba, a month ago, argued to his 370,000 plus followers on Twitter that it is a a good thing for people to preserve their ethnicity. On August 16, 2023, he wrote, God created different ethnic groups. To preserve them is to preserve God's creation and is therefore an inherent good. That is quite an argument. Is that landing for you at 2.23 on this afternoon with one session after another stacking up? That is a very consequential thing to say. To preserve different ethnic groups is an inherent good. What does that indicate? To not preserve them is an inherent what? Evil. A rising chorus on social media affirms and champions these views. It's a shadowy world out there on social media, in case you haven't noticed, with all sorts of anon accounts, as they are called. It's hard to say how influential this is, but it clearly is influential today. We've seen this in Lutheran circles as well. a person named Corey Mahler has advanced one kinist argument after another and has gotten serious traction, in some cases, for doing so in Lutheran circles. And again, the argument is that inter-ethnic marriage is problematic. A society of diverse ethnicities is not ideal. Christians should prefer their own kind, which typically means Christians who are white should prefer other white Christians. This has even gotten traction now in conservative circles where it's been argued very recently that Anglo-Saxons need as basically a moral duty to marry other Anglo-Saxons and have Anglo-Saxon families that perpetuate Anglo-Saxon culture. Much of this is driven by paranoia surrounding the great reset idea. All this to say, kinism is alive and well. In conservative and professedly christian circles and this is clear and present danger to the church so he just uh, denies replacement theory is a conspiracy
0: a little but, bit that's kind of what he's doing there and i, I do I, I do want to say he goes against replacement theory a little bit later on if he hasn't already which okay. i don't think he worst, has uh, but that. yeah What's his faith, or Stephen Wolf is not actually a kinist, and again, so to call him a kinist when he's definitely not a kinist is slander. Uh, Andrew Torba isn't exactly, uh, I, I don't say anything wrong well with that Andrew Torba statement because what's the opposite of preserving a an ethnicity? What's well, happening, genociding it? Oh, well, what's happening to America right now, or the Armenian Christians? Well, I mean, again. Let's just let's just go to Europe. You know, is a Brit is a Great Britain uh, that isn't British a good thing? Is London filled with foreigners a good thing? Is Germany no longer being German good thing? Is that is Italy no longer being Italian a good thing? I mean, other... oh. of all the nations we have to worry about, you know, Norm McDonald aptly pointed out that we got to watch out for the Germans. <laughs> so
1: uh... now we transition to our second. Section of this message, a biblical evaluation of kinism. I am going to give you a rapid fire, seven part response to the unbiblical ideas I have just sketched. First, we are all one human race. We are one human race. We were made one human race from the beginning. Every person is an image bearer. Satan hates this doctrine, but we love it. We stand for it. Though the world does its worst against us for standing for it.
0: Again, this is just classic boomerism. Uh, the idea of one race, the human race, isn't a biblical statement. It's not adequate or accurate to what the definition of race is. Um, there is a notion of the race of Adam, but at the same time, the saying the race of Adam isn't exclusionary to say the race of Abraham or Jacob or the race of Ishmael. Or other uses of that word, the the race, race of Ashkenaz. So oh, I mean, I guess uh, yeah, again, you know. just refer back to the Calvin quote where it talks about order of loyalties and order of love. So I mean, it does nothing. He's saying actually challenges the order of love, which it's, again is is cons- a reinforcement of post war consensus thinking and conservative response to charges of racism.
1: We are all image bearers. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the elderly person who can no longer care for themselves on their deathbed fighting Alzheimer's is an image bearer. The tiny baby, one month old in the womb, unable to feed itself or care for itself is an image bearer. Everyone of every skin color is equally an image bearer. If the world damns us for holding these truths, we will stand for them. Part of the argument that is made by kinists is that in the pre-fall world, everybody would have separated on their own and preferred their own. That is not correct. In the pre-fall world, in the unfallen world, if Adam had not sinned, yes, people would have lived in distinct places and cultivated distinct culture. That's no bad or evil or problematic reality, necessarily, in an unfallen world. And yet those people would not have been separated in a tribalistic or partial way. Tribalism and partialism comes from the fall in Genesis three and then from Babel in Genesis 11. It does not come from unfallen Eden. So the fundamental claim made by Wolf and others is wrong biblically and theologically. Don't fall prey to it. God confused the speech of the peoples at Babel because of pride. It was judgment and that has led to partialism as a form of judgment on humanity. Partiality is rooted in Babel, not Eden.
0: Uh, no, I think partiality predates, uh, Babel. Uh, but we're really going to debate the hypotheticals of a pre-lapsarian society. Now keep in mind, that is a theological premise in Wolf's book is a lot about what it, what it, what, what, a what exists. Yeah. And he talks about that there would be, light. that there would be uh culture, music, dance, uh, again, in, other places Wolf has talked about how even there would develop language in a sense like dialect and how certain languages are Latin. Again, you get people that are together and not like communicating. They're naturally going to have developed maybe different speech patterns than those in other places. Again, you can disagree with that, but that is his fundamental analysis that not all linguistic differences are necessarily the result of Babel. I Uh, mean, just if, as you, if you look at Europe especially at the time of the reformers because at the time of the reformers nations were in the process of standardizing their languages like Italy chose I believe the Tuscan uh, Italian to standardize throughout the entirety of the Italian world uh, actually maybe that was later on uh, because Italy wasn't really a nation well even even but, like you know Britain standardized their language France standardized their language like everyone's Whoa. standardizing their languages during this time period where the reformers were living in and why because you could move like 50 miles east and have a different language basically well i mean that's what koine greek is it's basically all the greek dialects but it's like alexander the great it's like the hellenistic version that spread throughout the world was the was koine greek it's not there's multiple different greeks but that one is what emerged in like combination of the others uh, yellow says they had to standardize it because of the printing press yes but also because of the rising crown authority of the monarchs of europe so they're, they're, it's pretty intricate the reasons why and you know what languages were chosen but as european monarchs became more powerful um they wanted to standardize their language it's just something that you do, and it's more efficient for ruling an entire region. But yeah, printing press would definitely play a role in that for sure. But I mean, but I mean, the idea that nation would exist, again, I mean, Wolf does argue things like there will be civil hierarchy in a prelapsarian world. Again, these are all part of his presuppositions, which again, you can reject them. That's fine. I'm not saying. But we're arguing hypotheticals. Like, True, sure, but these are hypotheticals that were still debated in the Protestant Reformation. For sure. So, I mean, the More idea that he's saying new information, no, these are debates that have happened before. Yeah, exactly. I don't think anything Stephen Wolf really articulates is a modern-esque belief, other than, like, the failures of multiculturalism. But that's, you know, because multiculturalism might not have existed
1: back then. This to come. Second, it is right for us to love our family and honor our ethnicity and nation. This is right. For example, in Romans 9, 1 to 8, Paul speaks of his kinsmen according to the flesh in verse 3. Paul doesn't identify with them over other believers, but he does express real concern for them. It's thus good, we can say, to love our family, love our community, and even, I could say by extension, I think, love our country as a patriot, not loving it without uh, thought, not loving it without uh, recognizing its real flaws and failings and terrible sins like America has, for example. But the Bible, I do not believe, teaches you to hate your country, hate your kinsmen, hate your community. It, in fact, teaches you to love your neighbor as yourself. Yes? So, So that is not supposed to be a partial or prejudicial love. We should not prefer our ethnicity then, I would argue, but neither should we be prejudiced against our ethnicity. Ethnicity is not ultimate and cannot be ultimate. It is not bad for you to have the ethnicity that God gave you. You don't need to be ashamed of it. I would say you should not be ashamed of it. God providentially gave you your ethnicity, and God, as a package deal, providentially gave you your skin color. We are all different shades of melanin. We are one human race. We are not different races. Acts 17.26, we are one human race. We do have different skin colors, but they're just different shadings. Much as we try to divide along those lines, God has made us who we are and placed us where He has. We should seek the good of the city in which we live." Jeremiah 29:7, "The exiles in Babylon, in fact, were told just a few verses earlier to plant gardens. They were not called <laughs> They were not called to head for the hills. They were not called to go and leave the, the blue state of Babylon and start yeah. a new red one. They were called to plant gardens in Babylon and have sons and daughters and be a light, imagine this, to be a light by the power of God in godless Babylon. That's the call of God's people. It echoes through the ages. It fits the New Testament, it fits the New Covenant, it fits the missional mandate of the Great Commission. We don't avoid the hard places. We know they're hard places. We don't enter them or send missionaries into them lightly as if it's a light and easy thing to enter a very difficult and dark place. No, I am from New England. I am from Maine. I am from where the people, He's going to okay. go on about maple syrup. So, so he just said that right here. So he,
0: I mean, he, he's contradicting himself. He's basically saying, if you live in California, your order of love should be to stay in California not leave California, but at the same time. And then he uses Jeremiah 29 to argue or, again, order of love, the proximity of where you're going to be in Babylon. You should love the land that you're in You should not be a subverter. But then, then, so your order of love is pretty much instructed from God to love the area, or to basically occupy as proper citizens well, in the area, and, and this do. is about God's judgment. The people that submitted to God's judgment and the exile get to actually return to the land. The people who refused to submit to the judgment and the exile, the people who you know wanted to stay, were basically the the dregs of society that they didn't like. Um, they did not get to uh, return to uh, form. I don't want to say return to the land because I I, I would interpreted as the end of the genesis 15 covenant like i would say that the old testament it ends the land covenants uh and you don't see any references to it being restored after that uh, or established but you know that's a topic for another day um but uh yeah the whole so i i'm not sure that context necessarily resonates right now because also you look at the new testament context you know paul getting you know carried down in a basket from the city of antioch does that ring a bell uh the idea of moving from place to place depending on how tough it was and the fact that because corinth was easier paul was actually able to stay there longer because it's actually a little bit of a plot twist where the jews try to go after paul and corinth but the proconsul is there uh says i ain't dealing with this nonsense and then the people that went after paul were beaten uh for it so that's that's a, a pogrom or anti-semitism right uh, no <laughs> or maybe but the point being the idea that the government allowing christianity to spread is actually a good thing uh the government be, you know you know, if that's the government being neutral towards Christianity, which I, I but it's you know, funny how allowing argue- the people persecuting Christianity to get beaten either by the Christians or by the the pagans who didn't want who thought their time was being wasted, if that's you know neutral world, imagine what positive world's going to be. Well, I mean, like two things. He's basically he's basically arguing order of loves, and that's why you shouldn't leave. It's a self love. But but that's basically Calvin's argument of why you should love your own nation more than others and love the people in your proximity and which would predominantly be of your ethnicity more than others. Now maybe he's not a uh, Christian uh, national or like a Protestant James uh, Francisco Franco thing, and he's more of a Protestant Jefferson Davis kind of guy. Maybe. Uh, in terms of red states, blue states, and all that other stuff. But at the same time, what matters more, the nation or the state in the United States context? That, that's a debate that people got to have, and that's a decision they have to come to on their own. Uh, but if you're in a red state, you shouldn't be lecturing bl- people in blue states how to come up with that, especially when I believe he's in a red state of Arkansas. Even though he's from Maine, so I don't think he gets to lecture people like that. Just like Michael O'Fallon living in, I believe, Naples, Florida. Pretty nice place. Doesn't get to lecture. Or is it Clearwater? I don't know. Either way, Bayside of or Gulf side of Florida. Very nice place. Doesn't get to lecture us on you know moving to red states.
1: Just saying. Profess at the level of 1% to be Christian. That's that's who would check that box on a census let alone who shows up for church on a Sunday morning instead of eating delicious Maine maple syrup with waffles or pancakes on Sunday morning at your leisure. You should, you know what you should do? You should eat the delicious Maine maple syrup, pure maple syrup first and then go to church. Okay, just solve that for everyone. So I know what it is to live in a fallen place and I don't take it lightly, but the New Testament does not say to you in any form I'm aware of, leave hard places. You have freedom as an individual Christian, but the church's missionaries that is, are not inherently called when things get tough to leave. In fact, the Apostle Paul plants numerous churches in hard places. Does he not? He goes into the darkness. He goes into the teeth of Satan himself and dares to proclaim Christ. He goes into synagogues that are taken over by the devil himself. The devil's own demons play in these places, and he dares to preach Christ. So you as a Christian have freedom to leave a state, just so I am clear. There is nothing in the Bible that says you cannot leave a hard place. Just to clarify. Well, he just said my point, though, is that we need Christians everywhere, including hard places. If your family is doing terribly in a very hard place, it may well be the case that you should move. God bless you if you do so. I have nothing to offer you biblically in terms of shame. I am simply trying to say for us as the church broadly to say, oh, yeah, we'll just turn our back on that place as a whole church, as a movement. No, we have no such mandate. We have no such call.
0: And I don't think Joe Revin makes it a mandate, but again, he, you know, if like 10% of California conservatives left that state, how many states could be won in the electoral college? But, you know, people love their uh, nice California weather. No. And let me just say, like, I think the whole patriotism versus nationalism debate, I mean, again, you're bickering over terms. But I think the people that identify as patriots don't realize that the country that they're supposedly patriotic about is dead and has been dead probably since nine uh, eleven. But and that country is no longer the case. The Constitution, you know, I'm for the Constitution. That Constitution is just a paper piece of paper. Uh, and there's a lot of passages about leaving, like brushing off the dust on your feet when you leave the unbelieving. Uh, village and then God told a uh, lot not to leave was also brought up. Uh, yes. When your children are in danger in a state like Cali, you
1: should leave. Uh, hopefully we get Joel Webin on to talk about fight by flight. And for what is good. And we resist. What is evil we don't have to embrace and we should not embrace unlimited immigration in our countries immigration is a prudential matter We should handle it prudentially so it is wrong for the left in america and throughout the west to try to radically alter different countries That is not a good thing. I offer no support for that in terms of massive overhaul of a given population Yes, you do globalism you do. is a scourge Nonetheless We do need to stand and and you're right
0: his argument in favor of a multicultural society is an argument in favor of you know this whole you just said mass that, immigration. That the idea that the a nation you've basically argued against Wolf's rebuttal of multicultural globalism that can be seen in Europe, specifically Europe. That the idea that oh, the British being a multicultural society is a good thing, and that if you don't want Britain to be have multiple a a nation like Britain to have three or more ethnicities, then that's a then then you're a kinist. I mean, he base he's already argued that.
1: And I would argue for certain ideals today, I believe in religious liberty. I do not believe in the forceful suppression of blasphemers in the New Covenant era. I recognize that Caesar is supposed to have rendered to Caesar what is Caesar's. There is, in some form, a neutral space created by the Lord of the Church, Jesus Christ, who knows about his own divine authority, I assure you.
0: Cite the verse.
1: Religious liberty is a
0: tremendous... While he's using, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, uh, but if you read Romans 13, what is the government supposed to punish evil is blaspheming, not evil, and therefore merits punishment from the civiling, civil governing authority, which our founding fathers of the United States of America believed in, by the way, that I, bla- they believed in blasphemy laws. I mean, the problem with this whole concept of being against blasphemy laws, again, it's not whether but which, but just in general, since humans are both material and spiritual beings the government will always try to govern the spiritual aspect of the human just as they govern the material so there there's always intersection between church and state between religion and that's and then the combination of the two might be referred to as civic religion but there's always one of the terms you'll you'll hear the anti-Christian nationalists throw around is sacralism, but I fail to see what the issue is with sacralism like can you prove that it's an issue it's, that it's an issue that people in the church and people in the politics talk to each other and coordinate? Is that really an issue because I don't think that is necessarily an issue in and of itself. No well, it'd probably be an expect it's a biblical expectation I, but- I, I you see that in the Bible. And, of course, Jesus says you'll be brought before the magistrates and the kings. For uh, name. Who was the uh, high priest that was basically a kingmaker who saved the Davidic line uh, from the descendant of Jezebel? I don't know, but I know. But I, that happened. I mean, I was blessed. I actually was writing something a while back, and it was about this idea. But there's always going to be intersection between church and state. That's never going to go away. So, I mean, just the idea that there's, that the state will never try to coerce the church. And it's probably much more rare for the church to ever have the upper hand in terms of power against the the state. I mean, Rome
1: would be like the biggest exception.
0: All right, we are on the final stretch. Let's
1: do this. I believe in democracy, not a dictatorship. I believe in free speech, not speech codes, whether totally pagan or Christian speech codes. I believe in the Constitution, much as its authority has definitely been weakened and maligned. I believe in the Constitution. If Peter could tell the church to honor the emperor despite all that Nero had wickedly done, I don't think we are beyond the bounds of our own republic, our own established authority. I believe in a multi-ethnic state, not a mono-ethnic one. And I believe in a multi-ethnic church as God builds it, not as we build it, not as the diversity experts say to build it, in the DEI industry, as God builds it. Third third truth, the Bible explodes the idea that inter-ethnic marriage is less than ideal. Kinism tells us to preserve your ethnicity. The major way you do this is through your marriage to your own kind, your kin. That's really where the entire term comes from. But we find in Scripture no call to this kind of action. You find, by contrast, the opposite of kinism with regard to marriage itself throughout the entire Bible. Okay, this is just
0: a ridiculous argument. Uh, Let's talk about his belief in democracy. Uh, Other Paul points out that, notice the creedal languages he uses here. I believe in, and referring to, I believe in democracy. Again, democracy is not a biblical form of government. It is actually, Probably the least biblical. Again, it, for those that want additional sources, I would look up Aaron McIntyre. He's doing a whole series on Joseph Demestre, who's a, probably a little bit on the Catholic, well, Catholic integralist side, but he offers a lot of counter French Revolution insights into politics and what the nature of sovereignty is. So there's a series uh, you can check out for on Aaron McIntyre. But yeah, he talks about the, and that. Today they did the whole, or recently they did the whole three forms of government: oligopoly, uh, oligarchy. Or, or no, it's aristocracy, oh. um, democracy, and uh, monarchy. And then the invert, the bad side of oligopoly or aristocracy is oligarchy. But there's only three forms of government. Every form of government is just a subset of the three, so to speak. But democracy is the least effective. And, and the founding fathers intended when they established democratic and aristocracy uh, in it to make the government less effective, less fast. Our system is designed to move slower, but now it's moving so slow that Congress is a vestigial organ and that the presidents and the courts make all the law now. So but there's also fundamental problems with that. We've taken away pretty much every element that wasn't a, democracy and made it a democracy except for the courts we haven't gone there yet but the senate is a democracy the presidency is more or less a democracy so instead of the idea of the aristocratic aristocratic elite kind of still having a lot of levers of power is well i mean it's actually more magnetized now but it's not the same as it would have been in the original founding all right but it's, and when he says multi-ethnic you know if you replace ethnic with cultural does the definition of what or does the argument of what he says or the logical conclusion thereof change is it altered in any way i would think the answer is no because he's conflating the issue of uh ethnicity and culture oh uh, he's saying you can have a multi-ethnic society that's not multicultural maybe okay. can you that would me? be the Shh. best case scenario of what he's arguing but he's also saying that the only way to preserve ethnicity is to only marry your own race. How about you don't mass import third world people into a first world nation? But even still, wouldn't that preserve an ethnicity? Oh yeah. Do we have to go so drastic on the nitty gritty house to house fight? I mean, are we saying not worry about the macro? You don't let people, you don't let millions of people every year into your Southern border. Isn't that a way to preserve your ethnicity?
1: All right, final stretch. Numbers twelve. When Moses marries a Cushite woman, a woman who was from present-day Ethiopia, probably of different skin colors, we can infer. We read this in Numbers
0: 12:1. Okay, Cush being in Ethiopia might be a stretch, maybe more like
1: Nubia. Not in the Old Testament. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. The Lord then says this in verse 8, "'Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses?' And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed." Verse 10, "'When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous.'" What is the point of this passage? The point of this passage is that speaking against Moses' inter-ethnic marriage was cursed by God. Uh, God curses the one who speaks against it. What would you say to those today who speak against inter-ethnic marriage? So you that is, see the, that is actually, is that is you're, a, okay. You're more
0: familiar with the uh, passage. So, you...
1: I mean, it's, I mean, it's debatable. I think it might be a
0: second wife or something, but the, it, the idea is that Miriam was rebelling against Moses. It's, it's not the, necessarily the interracial marriage aspect. He's actually overplaying that part. It's the idea that she is in rebellion against Moses. And that, and, so basically, everyone, I mean, kind of the journey of Numbers is that everyone rebe- slowly rebels against God. And then Moses is like the last one to rebel against God. And that's why he's not allowed to enter the promised land. But everyone rebels against God over the course of the 40 years. And, and I was, believe you know, the census count at the beginning of Numbers is actually higher than the census count at the end of Numbers because of all the judgments. I forget, but one tribe got absolutely. I mean, it's close. One tribe got absolutely wrecked because they were probably involved in the, uh, the orgy in Moab, but yeah, Uh, I mean, Ephraim maybe, or not, not Ephraim, but uh, one of the, one of the, I want to say was, um, Benjamin would get wrecked in the book of judges, but, but no, it's, he's overplaying the marriage aspect when it's really, Miriam was rebelling against Moses
1: and thereby rebelling against God. So what does the Bible say to them in light of this example? In Ruth 4, Boaz marries Ruth, a Moabite. That is an inter-ethnic marriage. In Matthew 1, 4 and 5, we learn about Salmon and Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite. All four of these people are explicitly named in Matthew 1, 5, in fact. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and on it goes. What I am telling you is that interethnic marriage is embedded in the line of Jesus. It's in the messianic line, friends. It's front and center. Do you know why? Because God wants you to see it. And God wants you to know that it is an honorable thing. It is a good thing. It is not a moral duty to marry across your ethnicity or something like this. You have freedom here. We have glorious freedom. Christians have so much trouble with freedom. It's often when we have freedom that things go off the rails, isn't it? and we start making new, oh boy, we got some freedom. The kids are gonna go wild around here. If he oh, we're preaching about God's freedom. love, we gotta lock this down. Give me some laws, everybody, just let's whiteboard this. Somebody get a whiteboard. Give me some good laws that we can put on paper to add to the Bible because we've got some freedom and we're freaking out and we've gotta handle this because if we don't, this whole thing's gonna blow in 10, nine, eight, seven. The whole thing, friends, this whole affair needs to make us stop and slow down and say, it is good and right to pursue holiness according to the word of God. But are we now seeking to bind men by our own new laws? And I would argue the answer is tragically, something common to us all in our sin, yes. Our fourth truth is this, Jesus reframes our understanding of family. I read the passage earlier, Matthew 12, 46 to 50. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, "Here are my mother and my brothers." Matthew 12:50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The son Catholic's heart is hit. I had to say that. Son of God honored his mother. He even pointed her out and assigned care for her from the cross as he died. That's a significant family tie, isn't it? Son of God did not disdain Mary. He loved Mary. Mary in fact, was saved by her son, wasn't she? She was in no way sinless. She needed a savior, as she herself recognized. Jesus then did not destroy family, the natural family. The New Testament does not destroy the natural family, but the New Testament does reprioritize family. It teaches us that we love our natural family as much as we can, but we are foremost citizens of the spiritual family of Christ, a family that, as I will preach, God willing, tomorrow morning has one father, the heavenly father. Our true family then, whatever our natural family looks like, is the family of God. Does the gospel alter our loves? Does it alter our relationships? It absolutely does. If it does not, for you, I do not say this in anger or heat. I fear you do not know the gospel. Let's continue the point because fifth. The gospel transforms our conception of identity. still has three more points. Transforms it. The Bible never teaches us to hate our ethnicity. The Bible does not teach us that our background, in providential terms, we got it all wrong. It does teach us, though, that there is a unifying force that is far, far greater than our ethnicity, skin color, and cultural heritage. And that force is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. A few of us, some of us were saying this, some of you have said this in conversations with folks pulled toward wokeness, haven't you? We don't regard anyone according to the flesh in terms of white people being hated in this country, as they definitely are by some. They're targeted. That's wicked. That's evil. That's wrong. That should be decried. That should be ended. That should, That is no place in the church. But now it goes the opposite way, doesn't it? We regard no one according to the flesh in terms of thinking that our natural ethnicity is itself to be preserved above all else. We don't regard anyone according, ultimately, in the church, to their skin color or background or ethnicity. Why? Because we are a gospel people. In Christ, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Satan hates this. I repeat, he hates gospel unity. He hates the gospel that unites across all divides in the natural world. But God loves a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group on earth. This leads us to see sixth, that we are no longer alienated from other ethnicities. There is no hostility between you and anyone else in terms of background in Christ. It does not exist. It has been canceled. Ephesians 2, 15. In his flesh, Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace between Jew and Gentile, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This and this alone is where inter-ethnic strife ceases. It is the church. It, It aligns elegantly with what James Coates was talking about some hours ago, that the church is where God displays his wisdom. That is exactly what James read from Ephesians 3.10. And that's what is in my message as well, because this is so vital. It's in the church that God's wisdom is displayed, not out in the culture. Don't expect the world to display the wisdom of God. Paul has told us that it is through the church that God's wisdom is made known. This is according to God's eternal purpose. This is all, in the Greek, a single term that sums up the effect of the gospel, Mysterion. It's the musterion. It's defined in Ephesians 3.6. The mystery, Paul writes, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery of the here. gospel is that Jew and
0: Gentile... Uh, yeah, uh, this is a like covenant the- theological uh, argument right here. I wish you would use this against Zionism. Which is the only ethno-partiality that is permissible these days. Very true. Um, it's worth noting that he's talking about spiritual family transcending all these divisions, but that doesn't remove the fact that we still have natural uh yeah, I mean, nothing natural he, relations. It doesn't not, cancel that out. Nothing he has said our duty to that has has nullified the whole order of love. And in fact, he's actually selectively uh, applied. argued order of love to the whole fight-by-flight
1: mentality. All right, let, let's wrap this up. Do not prefer their own. Jew and Gentile do not associate with their own kind, first and foremost. Jew and Gentile don't even see their identity as their identity any longer in a very strong way. That's all superseded. That's all altered. That's all transformed. the gospel of grace. The blood of Jesus Christ has made us one. Babel has been Pentecosted. Babel has been crucified. And now in Christ, the wisdom of God is displayed that people do not harbor native prejudice and partiality against one another. We die to that. God loves diversity, understood rightly. God loves his inter-ethnic church. God loves uniting people who have absolutely nothing in common outside of Jesus. These are not fourth level matters. These are gospel matters. Anyone who does not stand for these truths, I fear, either is in open sin against the gospel that has claimed them, which is a reality. We all stumble in many ways, James 3, 2. And therefore they need to repent. Or they do not know the true
0: gospel. But think, no one's arguing these points that he's bringing up right here, like he, he's arguing against a straw man, like a, a fictional opponent that believes it, you know, the, the gospel doesn't transcend these things.
1: If they do. And if they do, let them hear the gospel afresh and let kinism die. Seventh and finally, all who are in Christ are now a holy nation. We're now a holy nation. We've heard this already. It, it was in Jeff Moore's talk, so we really are on similar streams here. But 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are not trying to build a Christian nation. We are a Christian nation in Christ. It is not the kind, I, I agree with fellow speakers of, of different kinds thus far, it is not the case that this really feels triumphant here and now. It is not the case that this holy nation is necessarily going to win a whole lot of elections. It is not the case that this holy nation looks and feels strong. We arguably just one Speaker of the House. I mean, you and I, like, in many cases, look and feel weak.
0: Third most, you know,
1: third in line to the presidency. But God loves small things. Well, God second in line loves after the vice president the weak. being first in line. God blesses the tiny, God chooses the few, God does his own work according to his own calculations, and he does not need any assistance from us. We do not need and we should not want a Christian prince. Christ is our king. God is gathering in his people. Christ is building his church. The spirit is uniting beautifully people who have nothing in common but Jesus. Do not shift from the hope of the gospel, brothers and sisters, Colossians 1.23, remain stable and steadfast now. Satan wants you off kilter, paranoid, tense, angry, divisive, roiled up, fighting at all times, at all hours, in perpetual political theology cage stage. You remember Calvinism cage stage? Some of you may be in it now. It's okay, you're going to make it through. We're in political theology cage stage right now. We need some, some of us. We need to come out of it. And we need to hear this as well. We must reject kinism. This is a line in the sand. Kinism has no biblical backing. If you do hold a CN, reject kinism. The inter-ethnic church is glorious. We must honor the teaching of the word of God. Brothers and sisters, our presentation of the gospel is at stake. These are serious times and serious days. God will do the work. Take heart in that Jesus loves his church. Let's pray.
0: All right. Uh Other Paul says, I don't need surgery. Christ is my healer. And I think that's a pretty snarky response to the mentality of um Owen Strand here. And um, he has everything but an actual solution other than, you know, oh, you know, God uses the few. Okay, yeah, but you know, throw the, you know, cast the lot and let God determine the outcome. I mean, he's not actually... Why why should we want a Christian leader of a nation? Which is what he just said. Because he likes democracy. He likes democracy and he He likes... He believes in religious (laughs) liberty, which again, as John MacArthur famously said, religious liberty sends people to hell. But, you know, he likes that. And... You know, freedom of speech, which, again, is it's a great slogan, but it's not always a reality. Mm. Yeah, and it, it there's nothing here at the end because he says he's arguing against kinism, but he's really arguing against Stephen Wolf. And but, kinism is this word that he can use because kinism is just a more antiquated term for racism, really, if you think about it. Now, again, maybe we should get an actual kinest on here and see, you know, what their response is, but that wouldn't be Stephen Wolfe because he's not actually a kinest and he doesn't actually think, you know, interracial marriage should be illegal or anything like that. But it's interesting how you say one race, the human race, and then talk so much about interracial marriage being a thing about interethnic churches being a thing. Well, but but this is the whole mentality, like, okay. Like, no one would say that the, the black church, the all-black church is a bad thing or the all-Korean church is a bad thing, that these mono-ethnic churches are a bad thing unless it's a mono-ethnic white church. And, like, that's pretty much Owen Strand's logic. Is I mean, he's going back to the old days where, you know, you got to diversify the white church and that if your community is, like, 75% white and 25% not, your church... He's is reverting shady. back to his old days, and it shows. But either way, kinism is not a real issue. It's there aren't a substantial amount of kinnist out there. And I challenge you to find some actual kinnist. Uh, because it is Corey Mahler it. I don't know how large his following is. I don't know necessarily if he's Isn't a any, like a couple golf? thousand followers like on Twitter, but he's had to rebuild his account because mm-hmm. it got canceled or whatever. But stone choir i think might be a bigger platform than let's on who knows uh maybe uh let me know if you want me to interview those guys uh, get their perspective i'd put my journalism hat on and just say hey what is it that you guys believe and what are you accused of and hear their side of the story but who knows maybe that's something for uh, another day but this was a presentation of owen strand and again he doesn't understand ordo amortis the order of loves he doesn't understand that he's arguing against that he's arguing against human or the good parts of human nature i should say i mean does he have an example of a try at least you know a at least a tri-ethnic society that actually is succeeding i mean does he have at least one example and that's ultimately what he's arguing and that's why we're calling him woke in this title here is because he's arguing for a multicultural society i mean again because and, stephen wolf says that it's bad and, and it part of the reason really it. that it doesn't work is not necessarily because of the church it's because of the sinful nature of man that and especially in a democracy as he so where block voting matters or, yes Politics is tribal. That's not gonna go away it's in a fallen world. And when you have elections where the black vote is the black vote, the white evangelical vote is the white evangelical vote, 85% one way. And it's like, a lone bulwark, you could say. Yes. But <laughs> and Stephen Wolf did and say. when you have various interest groups competing, you're gonna have block voting. And again, that's you know, you can say racial identity doesn't matter, but at the end of the day, when when, you know, one group of people basically has racial identity in voting Democrat, unless you say, hey, uh, this, their ideology is anti-white, you're never gonna, I mean, you have to go that, that way in order to actually counter it. All right. I think we're going to wrap up for tonight. Good, uh, good talk. Good Lecture that we just went through and suffered through I want to let you know us you can support evangelical dark web at evangelical through our patreon like system at evangelical slash join That's how you can become a member and you get more access to more content I did an article on Stephen wolf versus James white And that was a little too spicy for gen pop, but the members got to see that behind the paywall so that's some of the content you can expect uh, have a blessed day and we will catch you on the next one.
1: Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but many health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes.